Good morning. Am I on? Yes? In town, it's so good to be with you this morning, and I love it when I don't have to read my own Old Testament passages. That is such a joy and a pleasure to get to uh, pass that off to someone else. I really am happy uh, to be here with you this morning. Israel and I got here yesterday morning. We've been having fun poking around Portland. It feels very similar, very homey to us in a lot of ways uh, from Long Beach. Also just a fun, quirky little city. And I'm from a quirky, friendly little church. Uh, and just happy to be with you guys here this morning. I know that I am kicking off. I'm kind of the warm-up act for a whole summer of different voices that you get to hear from, including my friend Julie Van Til, an incredible minister from San Francisco who's going to be here with you next week. And so I'm actually kind of disappointed that I don't get to be here next week hearing from her as well. And I'm just excited to be with you because last summer was actually a summer that the lead pastor at City Church of Long Beach took a sabbatical. And I am just remembering some of those feelings and emotions that we as a congregation and as a staff team were having as Bill was about to, you know, head out the door for three months. And it was, it was a little challenging, you know, at that beginning. We were just like, what is this going to be like? And it was wonderful. It was wonderful for him. It was wonderful for us, I think, as a community to have this opportunity to see how God could call out all of our gifts in a slightly different way. So, Brian, I'm just so excited for you that you get to go have this time. And and for all of you, I may be more excited for you than you are for yourselves. You're going to miss Brian, but it's going to be an incredible summer. I can't wait to see what God does with it. Well, uh, it was about two years ago, and I was taking a different kind of trip with my family. Um, My grandmother had passed away. It was a sad time, but it wasn't an unexpected passing. Uh, But for different reasons, my family, the whole crew of us, we had traveled out to Texas, and we were going to drive, after flying from California to Texas, we were going to be driving from Texas to Louisiana. And so I'm loading this whole big crew of people up into a van. And, you know, in some ways, it's just, it's, it's sort of same old, same old. I've done this drive as a child uh, from Texas to Louisiana. It's not that far. Um, I've done it a million times. But then all of a sudden, I have this moment where it strikes me that there's something very different about this trip. And I look over at my wonderful husband, who's significantly darker than I am. And I have this moment of clarity looking at him, looking at our four children and all their different shades. And I ask him, wait a second, how do we feel about driving into the deep south right now? I'd never had that thought, that question before. My skin color, I don't have to ask that question This is something that sociologists call salience. There's this idea that our traveling companions, our context, it changes how we look at the world. Certain things are relevant, they're important, based on our context. We don't see things in quite the same way, depending on where we're at. So with my multicultural family as traveling partners, all of a sudden, this legacy of deeply ingrained racism in the South became relevant, it became salient in my life. In a way that, I mean, yeah, I was aware of it, of course. We all are. But it was salient in my life. 
It took on a whole new meaning that it had never taken on before. So this kind of weird passage that we're looking at in Judges this morning, I think it has a lot to do with salience, and it has a lot to do with our traveling partners. It's an awkward text. You know, Portland talks about keeping itself weird. Down in Long Beach, we talk about staying awkward. You know, we think, we think awkwardness is important because it means being honest. When you're honest with each other, it's often awkward. This is an awkward text. It's kind of a Rorschach of a text. And I think what it challenges us to do, it dares us to do, is become aware of some of the lenses that we see the world through. And even to consider trying on some new ones. So the story, as Brian read it for us, there's this leader, Deborah. We call her a judge. She's a leader. She'd hear the concerns of the people. And she's doing her thing, leading the people. But she gets a word from the Lord. And because of this word from the Lord, she sends to Barak a message saying, you need to come. The Lord is commanding you, come and lead your people into battle. And Barak responds back and says, okay, if you go with me, I will go. But only that. He has conditions. If you go with me, I will go. So some of you may never have heard this story before because, you know, it is in one of those scary books in the Bible that we kind of stay out of uh, in Judges. Some of you may have heard it before. Some of you may not have. But probably, as you're listening to the story this morning, if I were to ask you what the first thing that kind of came to your mind was, it would have something to do with gender, right? Because Deborah is a woman. She is a woman leader. And she is sending this message to Barak, a male general. And for those of us who have heard the story before, we've kind of actually been trained by the leaders of the church, giants like Calvin and others, who have told us, that gender is what this text is about. Calvin and others before him have said basically that this story is about extraordinary circumstances. It's about how Deborah's leadership is kind of a fluke. It's an anomaly because Barak and the other men are being cowards. The word that Calvin uses is slothful. They're being slothful. And because they are so lazy, they're so cowardly, Deborah has to step up. And so this passage actually has become kind of a wrestling match. It's a place where people get together and they sort of duke it out. You know, is, is Deborah an example that people like me should follow? Or is she a warning to the men here that you shouldn't be slothful? You shouldn't be cowardly. Step up. Well, this morning, I'd really like to suggest that we try on a different lens. Think about it like in terms of like graphic arts. I'm not saying that we ignore the gender aspects of this passage. I'm just saying kind of like where you take a filter and you move it down a layer. Let's try and do that just for a few minutes with this story of Deborah and Barak. Not to ignore it completely, but just to say maybe there's a different first question that we could ask as we come to this passage. And I actually think it's a question that's a lot more useful to us in general as we go throughout our everyday lives. It's the question of how is the Spirit moving? What do you see the Spirit doing in this text? Isn't that a good question in general to ask in our lives? Where is the Spirit moving? How can we follow it? Well, I want to actually suggest that the Spirit of the Lord is at work in and amongst his people in this text. And we see it, I think, 
relatively obviously, because the text introduces us to Deborah, not just as a judge, not just as a leader, but very specifically as a prophet. She's someone who hears from the Lord in a special way and is able to share his words with the people. She's a prophet, one who carries the presence and the word of the Lord to the people in a special way. That one's kind of obvious. But more than that, we actually see Barak accepting and affirming that that is what's going on. Because of the filter that we have so often tended to bring to the text, we hear these words that he says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. And I think we hear them the way, I mean, I listen to my children when they're, they're reaching for their security blanket before they're going to walk out the door. It's like, no, I can't go on that trip without my blankie. Like, that's the way we've tended to interpret this passage. Barak is saying, I'm scared, I'm frightened, I need my blankie. He's cowering. It's an interesting way to read the passage, but I'm not sure it's the only way. In fact, I'm pretty confident that it's not. What if, with gender put to the side, what if Barak's actually following in a long line of tradition where the general of the, army, of the army goes to the prophet and says, we cannot do this without the Lord. I can't do this. Look at the enemies arrayed against us. There are so many. We're so few. The general says to the prophet, you must come with us because we can't do it without God. So Barak goes to Deborah like Moses would go, like Aaron would go to Moses, um, Joshua, saying, come, be the Moses to my Joshua. Carry the power and the presence of the Lord into this battle. If you go with me, I know the Lord is with us. I know God is with us. I don't want to go without you, because I don't want to go and do it without the Lord. I want to follow the presence of the Lord on this journey. So I think what we stop and ask ourselves as a community, as a people of God, is who are our Deborahs? Who are our barracks? Who are the people who, okay, we bring gender back to it. It's a little awkward, these partnerships that God has put us into. It's a little strange. I imagine it was a little weird in that culture for Barak to partner himself with Deborah. But that's where the spirit of the Lord was moving. For me, I think of one of my closest friends. Her name is Vanessa. And uh, when we became friends, it was actually back in college, It wasn't that awkward. It wasn't that strange. You know, there were so many similarities that we had. We actually, we got married and started having kids at around the same time. We went to the same seminary just a couple years apart. But somewhere maybe 10, 12 years back, in our spiritual journeys, we felt God leading us in very, very different ways. And we could put labels on it if we wanted to. I'm not sure they'd be that helpful, progressive, conservative, But at this point in our lives, I would say there are some very strong convictional differences that my friend Vanessa and I hold. And it it shapes everything about how we do our lives. I mean, it's so funny, but we can't trade clothes anymore because one of us dresses more modestly than the others. I'm just going to let you imagine who that might be. But um, (laughs) it's just, it's so interesting. We have these convictional level differences And I can't do life without my friend Vanessa. 
I can't follow God in quite the same way. I, I don't hold my faith in quite the same way that she does, and yet I wouldn't want to do my spiritual journey without her. Who's your Deborah? Who's your Barak? That awkward friendship. You're all on a spiritual journey. Are you allowing some awkward into your lives? People where you look at them and say, yeah, you're different. Definitely you're different. Maybe you're even a little strange. I think at this point Vanessa probably thinks I'm a little strange. I think she's a little strange sometimes too. I don't want to do do life without her. If she will go with me, I will go. Who is that person for you this morning? Unlikely partners that God has given us. And for some of you, that might be the only question you need this morning. But what's amazing about this passage is that after showing us this, this interesting picture of God partnering unlikely people together, the text actually goes on and it packs an even bigger punch. Because this is the kind of story, I mean, it's kind of like the movie, you think you're going one direction. The one that's popping into my mind right now is actually Frozen, because I have kids, and I had to watch that a million times. You know, so you think you know who the good guy is, you know, you think you know what direction the story is going, and then, whoa, plot twist. So in verse 9, Deborah is talking to Barak, and she lets him know, of course I'll go with you, but I just want you to know, because of the course you're taking, the honor is not going to be yours. The Lord is going to deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Well, I mean, we know what he's saying there, right? She's saying there, right? Like, honor's going to be mine, dude. No. This passage is amazing because the story moves on, chapter 4, chapter 5, and there's this huge plot twist where the enemy is running away. Sisera is running away, and he finds his way to the temp of this total outsider, total outsider named J.L., And she is actually the one who ends up killing the enemy leader. It's actually a whole different aspect, a whole different filter about violence that we could talk about with this passage because it's a pretty gruesome scene. But the point is that J.L., who's this incredible outsider, not someone you would look at to be the hero of the story. She's a housewife, a housewife who's actually the wife of one of Sisera's allies, She has to cross so many lines to do what she does in this story, to kill the enemy, to come to the side of the Israelites, tribal lines, lines of loyalty, lines of what was appropriate for her to do. Isn't it interesting how often our God does this? He takes the person who looks like they are completely on the outside, and he says, no, this This is the hero of the story. This, Barak, is who God is going to deliver the victory into the hands of this woman, this J.L. That's what God loves to do. I think of Jesus, you know, inviting the Samaritan woman, Samaritan woman who brings all of her friends, all of her neighbors, while the disciples are just kind of wandering around like all of us, just like, oh, we don't know what's going on. It's a Samaritan woman who's the hero of the story. And Deborah and Barak know it. In chapter 5, we see them just celebrating her. You have to go back and read that part of the story. They celebrate her just lavishly. There's no sense of um, a power struggle. I wanted the victory. Wait, are you saying my part wasn't important? I mean, I called Barak and I sent him. And Barak's like, 
I'm the one who actually led the troops. There's none of that. None of that kind of wrestling around. Instead, it's just, wow, let's celebrate each other. Deborah celebrating Barak. Barak celebrating Deborah. Both of them celebrating the common people of Israel who, who came out and they fought the battle. But most of all, the climax of the song is when they're celebrating Deborah. Most blessed of women, most blessed of tent-dwelling women, this unexpected ally in the Lord's work. When I read, the, when I read this, for the first time a few months ago, I was starting to mull on this passage as I was just thinking about, in our own church context, our unlikely partners. Because we have just been in a season of incredible favor as a church. And we're just a quirky, weird little church. You have to come visit us sometimes. We're, like, not impressive. We meet in an elementary school. We constantly have, you know, moments like today where it's like, who's reading? Who's praying? What? We're not impressive. But all these churches have come alongside us, and they've been offering all of this support, and we've been getting this sense from them that they don't want to go without us. They want to be partners in the journey. They're letting us be the JL in their story. And for us, we're constantly looking around, and we're seeing all of these unlikely partners of our own, these people that we would never have expected. I think of um, my friend Teresa. And Teresa, uh, she doesn't actually go to City Church of Long Beach. She visits us sometimes. But she, she lives right across from the elementary school where we worship. And uh, she's, she usually visits, uh, she usually worships at an African-American church in the area. But she loves us, and she's glad that we're there, and she's glad that we're in the neighborhood. And so recently, we've, we've had all of these experiences where there are families in the neighborhood where there's just been too much of a cultural gap, too much of a, they just don't know us yet, they don't trust us yet, to come directly to us with a need. So for instance, in Teresa's building, there was a family that, they, turns out they had been without power for several months no power, nothing for refrigeration, nothing for life, a family of five children. Um, and they weren't comfortable coming directly to us, but they came to Teresa. And they said, Teresa, Teresa was the one who was actually able to be the deacon for us, helping us make a connection with this family, helping us just get the power back on and love them, which we want to do. And yet we've needed her to be our JL. And I think of my friend Angelica. We are a tiny little church trying to set up for a kids' camp for 100 kids from our neighborhood. That's a big undertaking. And so we've been looking around to say, who, who could partner with us? Who could be, who could we just get some help from? We need help. We want to do this. We want to love our neighborhood well. Well, Angelica is the head of the Boosters Club at the school. And so we met with Angelica with kind of some fear and trembling, you know, just thinking like maybe, maybe the parents would be willing to help just a little bit. Well, it turns out they're not willing to help just a little bit. Angelica's going, yeah, I think you should come into the meetings and talk to the parents and tell them all about the camp. And, but, you know, really it sounds like it'd be easier if we run registration for you. By the way, all of us speak Spanish and most of you don't. Um, I mean, it's just been incredible. Now they're leading snacks Basically, our, our kids' camp has turned from something that was just City Church of Long Beach's project into something that this is a true partnership 
with the school that we meet at and with the, the parents who are there. Who are our JLs? The JLs in our life are the people where it's even more awkward. There are even more differences. Angelica is actually doing some work when she comes to meet with us because we have some cultural differences. She's making the effort um, to use a language that is not her native language to talk with us. Teresa being willing just to love us even though we're not even the church that she usually worships at. But she's saying... We're in this together. Together, there is something that God is trying to do that's larger than any one of us. Are we willing to look for the unlikely partners that God has put in front of us? I, you know, as I, I look at you here in in town, it's clear to me that you guys have that heart. I've read, you know, talked with Brian, looked on your website. You want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to Portland. This isn't about a holy huddle for you. You want to reach out. So amazing. So what I'm praying for you in town is that awareness that God would put more and more JLs in your path. I'm praying for lots of awkwardness for you this summer as you realize unexpected and amazing partners that God would have for you, for your Debras, for your Barracks, for your JLs. I'm excited for this journey that God has you on. Thanks for letting me be with you this morning. Could I pray for you? God, thank you for your example in Jesus, your example of humility. Barak, when he was celebrated in in the book of Hebrews, it wasn't for his strength, it was for his weakness. That weakness that allowed him to look and to see his need for you, his need for partners, even in unexpected places. God, would you teach us to be like you, to follow the cross-shaped example of our Savior Jesus, who didn't consider power something to be grasped. He didn't consider honor something he needed to grab for himself. God, he was willing to step down in humility for the sake of others and trust you to lift him up in due time. God, I pray that for the people here. Would you be with them as they follow your humble example, as they follow where you would have them go into the city of Portland? God, help them see the partners that you have for them. In your name we pray. Amen.